For all you musicians out there, isn't it fun when right before the refrain they change time signature for one measure? But thank you to our music team for leading us in such excellent songs that draw our hearts to worship this morning. And it is a joy to gather uh, together with you today. As we have just remembered in, in our time of communion, one of the most surprising aspects of the gospel is that the death of Jesus is the source of life to all of us and is the reason that he has been glorified with a name that is above every other name. This morning I want us to consider that perhaps the only more surprising thing is that he has called us to imitate that exact same pattern. And so this morning I hope that we can come to understand and celebrate what is really a paradox of glory as seen in the life of Jesus and a paradox of glory that is meant to be seen in our lives as well. And we'll be looking this morning, I'd invite you to take your Bibles and turn, if you would, to John chapter 12. And we'll be reading verses and studying verses 20 to 26 together. One final time, if you are able, would you stand for the honoring of God's word? And again, if that's a hardship, don't feel bad. But as you're able to honor the reading of God's word, we read this morning from John chapter 12, beginning in verse 20. Now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Would you pray with me? Father, we turn now to your word. We know that it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And so we ask that it would be alive in us today, that your spirit who lives within us, who understands fully the mind of Christ, would reveal to us that which we ought to know so that we might become more like him. We thank you, Father, for you have given to us all things in Christ. And so we come with gratitude and expectation, knowing that what we shall receive from you today will be good for your glory and also for our everlasting joy. And so this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. As we get ready to jump into our text this morning, I want us to recall that we are already in the narrative of John in the last week of the life of Jesus on this earth. Even though we have a lot more chapters to go to the end, so don't get too excited. It's a little bit like a preacher who says, and our last point, but it's like only halfway through the sermon. John focuses a lot on this last week of the life of Christ, and I thought it might be helpful to orient us a little and also see where John is choosing to focus on this last week, uh, where we're at in it. And so I brought pictures, and I thought we could just walk through a, a little timeline together just to show you kind of where we're at in the flow. And this first one, I know you can't read it, but I just want you to look at the bars of color on the far right, in particular the blue. 
So the, the purple, red, white-ish, and blue bars represent the Gospels, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. On the left, that long list of things you can't read are all the events that take place during the final week of the life of Christ. And the bars are filled in where each Gospel talks about them. So you can tell, for example, that Matthew is kind of a generalist. He covers a bunch of stuff, Mark and Luke, pretty similarly. But when we get to the column with John, you'll notice there's a massive gap. He introduces the week, the final week of Christ, and then he doesn't even bother talking hardly at all about almost all of, of Tuesday, all of Wednesday, and doesn't pick up the narrative again until Thursday and Friday because he's not as focused on the exchange back and forth between the Pharisees and Jesus and what's taking place in the temple. He's focusing on the teaching of Jesus surrounding his death, surrounding the ministry of his disciples that will take place after him, surrounding those things that prove that he is indeed the Son of God. And so we are finding ourselves right at the top of that list this morning. Uh, We've had Sunday has come, Jesus has come into Jerusalem, and then it's a little bit tricky to piece the exact timeline together, but we're probably sitting on a Monday right after Jesus has cleansed the temple for the second time. Don't don't turn me into a heretic if that proves wrong, but that's the best uh, assembly of the timeline I think we can do from the evidence that we have. If you begin to just mark through those slides, you can see on Sunday Jesus comes in, Uh, into Jerusalem. There's that triumphal entry. entry. Then we go to Monday where he comes back to Jerusalem. He's going to cleanse the temple. There's also going to be a return back to Bethany. And then we get into Tuesday. And now you can see in Tuesday, there's a lot of teaching and interaction going on. But look at that fourth column, the John column. Blank. He's like, next day, not important to what I'm trying to communicate. Then we hop on to the next day. Uh, which is Wednesday, sometimes called the missing day, because it's hard to find anything that happens on Wednesday, although there seems to be uh, a little study break by the Sanhedrin to figure out how to kill Jesus. That's sort of the main thing that happens on Wednesday. And then Thursday is where the narrative picks up in earnest, and it's also where we'll rejoin John again as he really dives into uh, the teaching and the life of Jesus again, picking up on that day, finally leading into Friday, of course, which is the longest because that's the day on which our Savior died. And we have a lot of detail surrounding that life. And you can see, again, John very extensively covers that day, leading into the weekend, Saturday and Sunday, when Christ is in the tomb and then rises again, which is that last day. And so that is sort of just the, uh, the flyover view of the last week of Christ. And we'll try to occasionally touch base just so we can reorient ourselves with where, we're in, where we are in that flow But I believe this morning then we're joining Jesus likely on Monday, sometime between Sunday and Monday of that final week of his life. And John is calling our attention to the teaching of Jesus that directs us to the significance of the death of Jesus. But he's going to do so in a way this morning that directs us to the significance of our dying as well. And so let's take up that topic of death and glory and begin by considering the timing of this lesson from Jesus. If you're taking notes This morning, your first point this morning is the time for glory in verses 20 to 23. John has been giving us sort of an overview of the crowd that's been following Jesus. As you'll recall, last week as, as Caleb walked us through this, you've had all these different groups of people. You've had those who were coming up to the feast from all over Israel who are curious 
to see Jesus. You've had those who are already living in the area of Jerusalem who are wondering if Jesus is going to have the nerve to show up. You have those who had been witnesses to the miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead and are now going about and bearing witness of him in Jerusalem. And then you have finally those of the Pharisees and rulers who were against Jesus and are seeking his death. And there is one group that we have not yet met. And it seems that John has chosen to skip ahead a whole day in his narrative because he wants to immediately introduce this last group to us. And only then will the crowd around Jesus be considered complete. And so we see the crowd is complete in verse 20. Now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, "'Sir, we wish to see Jesus.'" Philip came and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. These Greeks here are not necessarily from Greece. It was a common label that was used to refer to any of those who were not from Israel, but from the Greek-speaking world. And as a side note, it's significant to note that if you look at the original manuscripts that we have of the New Testament, they are not written in Hebrew the language of Israel. They are in fact written in Koine Greek, the simplified version of the Greek language that was for the entire Roman Empire to have as a common tongue. And so these Greeks end up being those who speak the language that God is going to reveal himself to because as we're going to see, God's plan is not just for Israel. These Greeks, these Gentiles, are coming not because of mere curiosity, but they are coming to worship at the feast. And so they were either proselytes, those who had officially identified as Jews and had gone through circumcision and had begun to live the entirety of the law, or they were those who greatly sympathized with Israel and worshipped Yahweh. Think, for example, of the centurion up in the area of Galilee who had loved the Jews, loved the God of Israel, and had funded and built the synagogue in Capernaum. These Greeks then, these Gentiles, approach Philip. Why'd they go to Philip? We don't exactly know. He could have just been the first guy that they saw when they came to find Jesus. It also could have been because he and Andrew were the only two disciples that had a Greek name, and maybe they thought he'd be a little more sympathetic. Or it could be because of where he was from. There's a little map here to show you where the city of Bethsaida is located. It's kind of on the east side of the north end of the Sea of Galilee. It was sort of the closest city in that region to an area known as the Decapolis, this grouping of ten cities largely populated by Gentiles. And so they may have thought, Philip, he grew up right next to all of us Gentiles. He's got a Greek name. He might be more sympathetic to our cause. For whatever reason, they come to him and they ask him, This question motivated by simple curiosity, but it's a question that should resonate with us as readers today because we know that John puts this in here not just to note the historical significance, but because he's putting this together to magnify the work of Jesus as the God who saves the world. And they come and they ask, sir, we wish to see Jesus. It was not just for the Jews that Jesus came, but for the Greeks as well, for the peoples of every nation, every tribe, and every tongue. And I think we just get a little taste of things to come in this question. And I also think that's why, as we're going to see in a little bit, 
This question and the timing of it is so significant. But first, that question needs to get to Jesus. Philip seems to be a little bit more timid as far as disciples go. And he may have been thinking Jesus had told them earlier when he sent them out to go preaching, when he told them, just go to the house of Israel, that I don't know if we're supposed to do like Gentile ministry yet. I don't know if I want to get in trouble for bringing all the Greeks to Jesus. It's kind of a big week. There's a lot going on. But I know somebody who's got the guts to ask. And so he goes and finds the brother of the foot-shaped, mouthed disciple Peter, whose name was Andrew, who also happened to grow up in the same town that he did. So very likely Simon Andrew, Simon Peter, Andrew, and Philip were childhood friends there in Bethsaida. Andrew appears to be a much bolder disciple. We see him primarily three times in John's gospel, and in every case he's bringing somebody to Jesus. Uh, He loves introducing people to Christ. And so they together then bear the message of the Greeks and tell Jesus about the question. And that's when we see this crowd that is complete now made up of all of those from all over Israel, but now also made up of this token representation of the nations. They come together and we see Jesus respond in verse 23 and tell us that the time is now complete as well. Look at verse 23. And Jesus answered them saying, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. And that must at first have seemed an odd response. They thought they were arranging an interview, right? But they had actually just triggered an alarm on the most important clock in all of time. The countdown to ultimate glory itself. This theme of the hour has come up already in Jesus' ministry. If you recall, all the way back at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, Jesus told his mother Mary, my hour has not yet come before the miracle of turning water into wine in chapter 2, verse 4. Jesus reminded the Samaritan woman at the well that true worship in spirit and in truth, instead of worship tied to a geographical place like Jerusalem, was waiting the coming of the right hour in John chapter 4, 21 to 23. And then twice when men attempted to seize Jesus in the temple after teaching at the Feast of Booths, they were unable to because his hour had not come, John chapter 7, verse 30, and John chapter 8, verse 20. But now it is time. Now the hour has come to set events in motion for the glorification of the Son of Man. And this is interesting when you think of this response of Christ. Why didn't he say this during the triumphal entry? Why didn't he say this when the the donkey's colt was brought to him and he was beginning to present himself to the nation officially as their king and as their Messiah in fulfillment of all prophecy? Why didn't riding into Jerusalem he say, the hour has now come for the glorification of the Son of Man? No, instead, this is when he chooses to say, Okay, now's the time. The king is being presented to his chosen people and he knows they will reject him. But he also knows he will still be their savior, but not theirs only. His salvation is for all peoples, 
As Paul wrote in Galatians 4, But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. The coming of Jesus did not happen one second earlier or later than what God had determined from the beginning. And his coming was not to show us how to be good, fulfilled people. His coming was not to challenge the status quo of the elites. His coming was not to inspire the nation to rise against the Romans. Jesus came to redeem those under the law and give to them the gift of adoption as sons into the family of his father. And this was a gift every Jew would need. Even those who standing around Jesus right now already thought they were fine with God just on the basis of their ethnic origin. And it was a gift every person from every nation needs and a gift that is now being offered to the world. This hour of redemption, this hour of glorification, it's a paradox. It's a paradox of blinding importance because this is now the hour of Jesus' greatest humiliation and suffering. And this is also the hour of Jesus' greatest triumph and glory. How is this possible? Well, consider this. You will never again in all eternity all eternity, with all of its glories and wonders unimagined, see more of the attributes of God on display simultaneously that commands our awe and wonder as you will see at the cross. More of who God is in His power, in His mercy, in His justice, in His wrath, in His holiness, in His grace, in His steadfastness, in His covenant keeping. You can go down the list. More of the attributes of God that inspire wonder and awe in us are on display at the cross than at any other point in all of eternity past or to all of eternity future. And you will never again in all eternity see more of the character of God on display that compels our undying love as you will see at the cross. This is where God demonstrates his love toward us. And in the eternal future, we will enjoy the love of God forever. This is where he proved its depths. In short, the cross, the hour that is now arriving, is the greatest display of God being God that ever has or ever will take place. All previous history points forward to it. All subsequent history points back to it. All eternity rests entirely upon this hour. These indeed are deep waters. But they are waters that you and I are not only invited to gaze into, as we're about to see, we are told to jump in and swim in them. But first, a couple lessons. The world still needs to see Jesus. The world still needs to see Jesus. Paul once had a vision of a man in a place 
that had never heard the gospel calling out to him to come help his people in Acts 16, verse 9. And in response to that vision, he set out to preach the gospel there. And the result? The very first believer in all of Europe, a woman named Lydia. There are many who still need to see Jesus for the first time. Jesus intends that at his table will sit the adopted ones he has called from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And he is also determined that the honor and duty of bringing the message of redemption to the ends of the earth is the responsibility of his disciples. I am thankful for the opportunities our church has to partner with our global outreach partners around the world. Let us be reminded of the importance of prayer and of supporting those engaged in this work, long-term and short-term. I also want to encourage us with this, strengthen the work you are part of. Think about it. You're not in Jerusalem. When Jesus said the gospel would be preached to the uttermost parts of the earth, maybe he was thinking of Spokane Valley because it's on the opposite end of the planet. And now that the gospel has made it here, Will it fade away because of the complacency of his people? Or will we keep it strong and vibrant in our discipleship of our families and our evangelism and love for our neighbors? I also invite you to consider if God might be calling you to bring good news to someone who has never heard it. I am still waiting with expectation for the day when as Valley Bible Church we get to send out our first homegrown, full-time, supported missionary, excuse me, global outreach partner, to somewhere in this world that has never heard the name of Jesus. How cool would that be? Maybe some of you younger folks in here, that's the adventure God is calling you to. The task is still very great. The task is still very great. One in five people in this world have no Bible in any translation they could read even if a missionary brought the gospel to them. In fact, according to Wycliffe, only 704 out of 7,360 languages in the world have a complete copy of God's Word. It's a lot of work left to be done. 42.5% of all the known people groups in the world are still classified as unreached by the gospel. That doesn't even include those that are classified as superficially reached because maybe there's like a radio station that wafts something across their lands. Unreached entirely by the gospel, 3.23 billion people are estimated right now to have no access to the good news of Jesus Christ. There's much work to be done. And let us be like Philip and Andrew and say, can we arrange a meeting between those who need the Savior and the good news that the Savior has for them? The world still needs to see Jesus. And secondly, remember what time it is. Remember what time it is. We live between the fullness of the time, as Paul wrote in Galatians, and the fullness of the times, as he wrote in Ephesians 1. 
In Galatians 4, he said, when the fullness of time came, God sent his son to be born of a woman. But in Ephesians 1, Paul tells us that in the wisdom of God, in his mercy, he has made known to us the mystery of his will with an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. When the time was full, the Savior came. When the times are full, the Savior returns, and you and I live in the messy middle. This is the age in which we have the assurance of Christ's redeeming work and the hope of his future reign. And so we are not to lose heart here in the messy middle no matter what rises and falls on the world stage, and no matter what rises and falls on the stage of your own sphere of life. Instead, we must learn to imitate during this time our Savior as we have been called to do. And in verses 24 to 26, Jesus gives us not only the timing of his glory, but now he gives us a trail to follow as we move forwards sharing in the same glory that he himself received. So look with me at the trail to glory in verses 24 to 26. And we look first at the paradox of life and death. Verse 24 says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it does, it bears much fruit. This would have been a simple example that would have been known to all, but it contains a very profound truth. If that which has the potential to produce life refuses to give of itself, then there will be no life. It really is that simple. If that which has the the potential to produce life refuses to sacrifice of itself, that life will never happen. It will be barren and alone. If that which has the potential to produce life does sacrifice itself, it will be fruitful. And Jesus looks as an example to the grain that was common throughout the land, that little kernel, so insignificant on its own, but once planted, able to produce something multiple times more than what began. It's always fascinated me to see examples in Egypt. Lots of cool things happen in Egypt because nothing can rot in Egypt. But to see these tombs they've gone into that have been sitting there for thousands of years and they come out with these jars of grain that were put in there to, you know, I guess help Pharaoh munch in the afterlife. Apparently in the afterlife you don't have much of an appetite because they haven't been touched. But they bring out this grain, and guess what? It looks almost exactly like it did when they put it in thousands of years ago. That seed which has not died has done nothing. And in the dark and in the stillness of millennia, it has simply lain there alone. But... Take a kernel and introduce it to fertile soil and watch that seed die. Watch it disappear. 
Watch it release all of its nutrients and life will come. That's the picture here. I'm convinced that this world is increasingly trying to become a grain museum. It's a place where everyone is encouraged to keep their little kernel of wheat intact and unharmed for as long as possible. God isn't trying to produce a grain museum. He's trying to grow a garden full of life and full of beauty where each year's fruit is greater than the one that came before it. And to achieve this, we must follow His example and be willing to lay our life down that it may give life to others. And that principle is made explicit in the next verse, in the principle of love and hate. Look at verse 25. He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. This verse follows the common idiom of the time to express a truth through an extreme contrast of love and hate. The Hebrews kind of liked, as Blake would say, putting the pig on the table. You must love this and hate that to keep the contrast clear. And the word love that Jesus uses here isn't the normal word for love we see in most of the New Testament, agape love, which means a self-sacrificing love for the good of another. No, here he uses the word that means a warm family affection. Jesus is warning us against being overly fond of our lives in this world in a way that causes us to miss out on life eternal. So how do we love our lives? What does that even look like? Well, maybe it looks, by, it looks like an overly fond love of what we have. We live in a country full of incredible material blessings. We must ask ourselves, what standard of living do I need before I can be happy? What standard of living do I need before I can be happy? Incidentally, part of the reason that most of the Western world is facing what is called a population cliff is because families are prioritizing the standard of their living over even the goodness of raising children. And you're about to see a demographic catastrophe unseen in the history of the world across almost all of the West over the next few decades. Are we overly fond of what we have? Are we overly fond? Do we love what we can achieve? Where do you have to get in life before you're content? What do you need to have accomplished before you're able to rest? Do we love our reputation? Whose approval do you need on social media? Whose approval do you need in your circle of acquaintances and neighbors and friends and family for you to be confident? Do you love your comfort? What is your threshold for discomfort, for hardship before you're unwilling to continue? Do we love our health? 
what level of physical or mental health is required for us to be free from constant anxiety and worry. How do you spot where there's a love problem? How do we spot where there's an unhealthy affection or fondness for our life in this world? Well, it's not by looking at what you enjoy. So there's a sigh of relief for all of us. God gives many good gifts. They include dishwashers, ice cream, sunsets. There are lots of good gifts that it would be wrong for us not to enjoy. But I think we can ask ourselves these two questions to help us spot where our love problem is in this life. And the first is this, what are you willing to sin to achieve? What are you willing to sin to achieve? What are you willing to say, I want this so much that I will betray my affection for Christ in order to get it? Those things in our life where we cultivate patterns and habits of sin, that reveals to us a love that we have that has gone astray. Secondly, what are you willing to lie to preserve? What are you willing to lie to preserve? Lying and deceiving is a serious thing. And we use it to cover up the reality of when our loves have gone astray. What are you willing to sin to achieve? What are you willing to lie to preserve? If you've identified that thing, that is where your heart is too fond of something in this life. Instead, Jesus calls us to hate our lives in this world. What does that mean? Well, it's not a verse encouraging you to despise yourself. No, indeed. It's rather a verse that is encouraging us to realize that what is most deserving of our affection, of our deepest desires, is not some internal identity or status of ourselves. It is an external reality. And Paul perfectly captured this in his famous observation in Philippians 3, verses 7 to 11, when he said this, but whatever things... And in that, he had just finished mentioning who he was as a Hebrew and the tribe he had come from and his training and his background. And so he's not just saying my stuff. He's saying the things about me as a person, whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And more than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. And that word rubbish is a strong word. In fact, there are several lexicons that have a little asterisk to explain. I'm only going to use a swear word now because it's the only thing that can convey the crudity of the Greek. And then they write things you don't expect to find in Greek lexicons. Rubbish is a strong word. And may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. That is what Jesus is saying. 
Come and conform yourselves to my death that you may know me and you may know the power of my resurrection and you may know the fellowship of my sufferings and so that you may know the resurrection from the dead. Are you as fond of Christ as you are of your family? Are you as fond as, of Christ as you are even of your favorite sports team? <laughs> of your ideal retirement lifestyle you've been imagining? Do you value knowing Him by imitating Him more than you value whatever journey of self-discovery, especially you young people that you've been told you need to go on? Are you willing to follow his example in giving yourself up that you might be the vessel through which his life can be reproduced in others? If so, then you are ready to be a deacon, which is our last verse this morning. The pattern of service and honor in verse 26. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. This verse is a reminder of what this whole process is about. We're not exalting self-sacrifice as some kind of good on its own. And there are some who have looked at this teaching of Christ and they've said, what kind of a weird cult as this that glorifies suffering, glorifies misery, glorifies pointless death. In fact, even Gandhi said, I admire the teachings of Jesus so much, but this whole dying thing seems like such a waste. No, it is not the self-sacrifice. It is not the death itself that is a good. The context of our dying to self is service to the one who died for us. That we who have shared in his dying, may also share in his living and be the tool by which life comes to others. That's the kind of sacrifice Jesus calls us to. It's not an annihilation. It's fruitfulness. And that word serve that you see both as a noun and a verb there in verse 26, it's the word we get deacon from. See, I told you you'd be deacons. To serve, to do the will of another. How can you spot a servant of Jesus? Easy. Find the one following him closely. If, if you wish to be my servant, you will follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. How do you find the servant of Jesus? Look for the one who's close to him, who's inseparable from him who follows through obedience, who does the will of Jesus, even when it's costly, who follows through suffering, who's willing to endure hardship for the sake of Christ, and who follows through dying. Those who do not treasure their life in this world, but intentionally are spent for the kingdom of God whether that's a lifetime of self-sacrifice 
or whether that is declaring his name at the point of martyrdom. We follow through obedience, suffering, and dying. And when you see somebody who is doing that, you have found a servant of Christ. Both the principles by which Jesus lived and the pattern that Jesus followed in his life are ours to imitate. And Jesus says the result will be that the Father who honored his only begotten Son will also honor every adopted Son as well. And the Son who humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross, so that he was then exalted to the right hand of the Father and given a name above every other name, that same Son has said, this is how it's done. Humble yourselves, give your lives, be willing to go through the humiliation and death that I did, and you will also be brought up to glory and honor by the Father who lifted me as well. And so a few closing lessons for us this morning. No, we're not halfway through, we're actually almost done. Do not despise your dying. Do not despise your dying. That looks differently for us. For some of you, your dying is taking care of little children. And you wake up and there's a mess. And you hope you can get that mess cleaned up before there's another mess. And you teach and you train and you pour your heart and you turn around and you look back and it's like it never happened. And you're tired and you're exhausted and nobody's giving you corporate mother of the year plaques and year-end bonuses and kudos. And day after day after day, you look and you realize as you look in the mirror, I'm getting older. I'm wearing out. Is this worth it? It's a kind of dying, is it not? It's a fruitful dying. It's a good dying. Some of you fathers in the room, similarly, you're maybe toiling at a job that is not exactly the fulfilling dream gig you always imagined you'd have. And you haven't been able to buy the house you imagined you'd have. And you don't get to go on the vacations you imagined you could. And there's drama and insecurity at work. And it's just a slog. And it's hard. And it's day in and day out and relentless. And you don't get a break. And you're realizing the older I get, the more my options are narrowing. The things that I thought, well, maybe, maybe I can redirect. Maybe I could do this. Maybe I could change that. Some of those options are gone now. That's a kind of dying. Maybe you're having to take a stand for what's right, and maybe you're in a situation where you have close relationships in your family or close relationships among those around you, and, and you're trying to honor Jesus Christ, and it's costing you because people are saying that view of things is unacceptable anymore. And so as you seek to persevere in following Christ, you're noticing your relationships with people you care about are dying. And there may come a day when that cost becomes even physical and tangible. I would not be surprised to see within our lifetime jail and persecution and other things face the church even here in America. 
but pray for those around our world who are suffering death now, torture now for the name of Christ. Far more have been killed in the name of Christ in the last hundred years than all of the persecutions of the early church put together. This is not, and we need to remind ourselves of that, this is not the plan going wrong. This is how fruit is produced. This is how life is shared. And there is a honor and a joy in giving ourselves and realizing that we are being spent and poured out for something that matters. Because guess what? If you have the perfect job, if you make somebody else raise your children, if you have everything work out in your relationships and you've always got the perfectly correct response to everything that makes everybody happy, if you do all the things that it takes to preserve your life in this world, you'll still die. You'll still die without ever having given out the life that Christ has put in you. So do not despise your dying. Instead, as we heartily engage with those sacrifices God has called us to, let us prove that our service to Christ is glorious. Let us prove that our service to Christ is glorious. Jesus said, now is the hour for my glorification. As he approached his suffering, it wasn't when he stepped from the tomb. Whew, I'm glad that's over with. Now is the hour for my glorification. No, it was before the cross he said this. And so may we, even as we approach our own suffering, even as we approach our own sacrificing, our own dying, say, now is the hour of glory for me too to follow his example that I may share in his reward. In the words that we have already sung and from the song that we will momentarily close in, soul, then know thy full salvation. Rise over sin and fear and care. Joy to find in every station. Every station. Something still to do or bear. How, how is that supposed to work? My station does not have anything enjoyable to do or bear in it. Think what spirit dwells within thee. Think what father's smiles are thine. Think that Jesus died to win thee. Child of heaven, canst thou repine? This is not the time for rest. This is the time to be spent, and then the rest will come. Let's pray. Father, as is so often the case, your word teaches to us principles that can be declared, but which are so far beyond what we have achieved. 
how quickly does our fondness for this life crowd out those better things that you have for us. Help us not to fight this battle in the flesh, seeking to squeeze out bad habits and wrong ways of thinking through an exercise of self-discipline and grit, but rather, would you help us to love your Son, Jesus Christ, in such a consuming way to appreciate and be so grateful for what he has done for us, to anticipate with such clarity the fulfillment of all your promises that all that we are called to do would be counted to us a blessed privilege. Grant us this perspective in the midst of a world that lies in our face every day. We pray. Amen.